also the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. As we look at John's, John's writing here in the book of Revelation. And we'll be looking at the entire chapter here, the throne room of heaven. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Really a magnificent picture that John describes here of the throne room of heaven, the throne of God and all that surrounds it. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one was sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, 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 it's the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, The twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Amen. This morning we're very blessed to have Andrew Craig come and open the Word of God for us. He is the Associate Pastor of Christian Education at Eastridge Baptist Church down in Kent. He was previously at Grace Church where he was involved with children's ministry, and his wife Priscilla have two children, and they are here. And we're so very thankful as I was out of town for a little bit last week, and he has come to Uh, help in the ministry. So let's give him a warm welcome as he comes.
was just asking Joe what time to be done so I could get you all out of here on time. I couldn't remember. You're welcome. (laughs) It's always a joy to come and and lift our voices together and enjoy our time. Uh, It's it's a warm welcome. So many of you have already greeted my wife and I warmly, and uh, we just enjoy you all so much and enjoy spending time together in the Word. So we've looked at Revelation 4 already. You've turned there, hopefully, in your Bibles. And um, this passage reminds me of a gospel tract. Many of you have probably seen it. It's the Four Spiritual Laws, written by Bill Bright from Campus Crusade for Christ. And it's one of the most popular tracts used of all time. Um, And in that little booklet, there's a little picture that's really helpful to me. I know the, the whole track may be some things to talk about, but with, within that, there's a picture that's really, really helpful to me, and the picture's really simple. There's two circles. You've probably seen this before. In one circle, there is in the middle of the circle a chair, and um, around that chair are all these little other circles surrounding that chair, and they're all different sizes and sort of pointing different ways, and it's kind of a chaotic picture. On sitting on that little chair is an S, and that represents self. And then outside of the, the circle is a cross representing God and Christ, and the picture is really clear. It's a picture of what life looks like when Christ is not on the throne of your life. Everything's sort of chaotic. Your, your life just is not in the order that it's meant to be. The other picture, there's another circle, and it has a throne just like the first picture. This time, the circles around the throne are these evenly spaced, similarly sized circles, all pointing in towards the throne. And this time, sitting on the throne is a cross representing God and Christ. And at the foot of the throne is an S representing self. And again, the picture's clear, isn't it? This is what happens when you have things rightly ordered in your life with Christ as the one who is on his throne. You are the one who worships at the throne. And then all the things are in order. It doesn't mean your life is perfect by any stretch. It just means that things are actually as they should be now. And I appreciate that picture because it so quickly captures the, the, the summary of where our lives either are or ought to be. But it's just a little sketch. And the throne in that is just this small little chair. And what I want us to do this morning is to look at Revelation chapter 4 and actually see God's throne for what it is. To see his holy throne room upon which he sits and from where he reigns so that we understand that little chair is not just some little chair, it is a massive uh, picture of his absolute sovereignty and control and authority and deserving of honor. And I want it to cast light on the kind of thrones that we try to sit on. The kind of thrones that we try to sit on are like we went dumpster diving in the back of some alley and we pull out this dilapidated, old, smelly lawn chair that's totally broken apart and that's the throne that we try to sit upon and rule our lives from. When you look at the throne of God and you see it for what it is, it can do nothing less than to show us that our, our thrones are so insignificant compared to His. And so may we, this morning, see God's throne rightly so that we get off of ours. Now, I know the book of Revelation is a, um, stirs up some emotions and some controversy at times. I have no desire to get into trouble this morning, uh, so we'll try and be careful. I taught, someone asked me before if this was a children's message, and I taught Revelation 4 to, my, to the kids a little bit ago, so um, I'll just take a little bit longer to do the same thing I did with them. We'll keep it, we'll keep it uncontroversial. 
but a couple of, of points, and there's some disagreement on these things, just to, but to throw out some context here. The, the Revelation comes as the last book in our Bibles because it was the last book written, most likely towards the end of the first century, written by the Apostle John. He's on the Isle of Patmos, as it says in the beginning of chapter 1, and he is in exile on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's been faithful. And he's in exile now and hard labor, and he is the last living apostle, most likely. And under these circumstances, he receives this vision, this revelation given to him by Jesus Christ. And Jesus divides the book into three parts, really. In, in chapter 1, verse 19, he says to John, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So it divides up real nicely. It's nice when you get the outline of a book right at the very start. The things that you've seen is what John sees in chapter 1, the, the description of Jesus Christ, and then the things that are, chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, and then the things that are about to take place is chapters 4 through the rest of the book. And so our chapter here sits at sort of the precipice of the revelation that John is going to receive concerning the things that are to come and the judgments of God that are to come upon the world in such a fury, in such an almost chaotic kind of display of God's wrath being poured out as God's patience with the wickedness of men finally dries up and God's wrath comes upon the earth in such a devastating judgment. And during that time, as you read chapters 6 through 18 of the book of Revelation, it's just, it's almost hard to read. It's judgment after judgment, but in the midst of these judgments is the rising of this anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Christians system of led by the Antichrist and powered by Satan. It's just this time of epic rebellion against God, hatred for his people, hatred against the things of God, a time and period of lawlessness. John's about to see that. It's intimidating enough for us to read through chapters 6 through 18 of Revelation. John had to see it. And as he sees it, you can only imagine the kind of things that would be stirred up within you seeing that kind of display. It would be troubling. And yet at the beginning of all this, John is lifted up into heaven and he sees this sight of what's happening in heaven, the source of where all of this judgment is going to come. And he sees the mighty throne room of God so that it is certain to him where the authority in the universe lies amidst all of the chaos that's going to happen. John is absolutely convinced by chapter 4 who has the authority in the universe and from which all of the judgment and chaos that's going to come comes from. So John is being undergirded for what he's going to see in the future. And this is, is really such a helpful um, sentiment for us. Our lives aren't necessarily um, uh, identified by the kind of chaos that marks chapter 6 through 18, but our lives certainly feel that kind of chaotic at times. We can sometimes feel the pressures of the world uh, as we try to live as a Christian in the midst of our ungodly society. We live in the midst of an ungodly world where Christ is not exalted and and God is not honored and his law is broken day after day. And perhaps you're the token Christian at work or the token Christian at home where you're kind of looked at a little bit askance as the odd one out, the one who doesn't quite fit with everything else and every other um, identification in society. 
and you might feel those pressures of this, this kind of world encroaching in on you, and you know that you kind of stand out, and it just which one is not like the others, and it's you. Well, this chapter 4 is a comforting passage for us as we face the difficulties and circumstances in the world that constantly try to draw us away from God and draw us away from Christ. This sets us up so that we'll stand firm upon the authority of God as displayed here in chapter 4. This, this passage really falls apart into two pretty easy categories. First, we'll look at, we'll, we'll see the one at the center of heaven, and we'll, we'll spend most of our time in this, these verses, and then we'll wrap things up with a response to seeing the one at the center of heaven. So John, there in verse 1, is told, after, look, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. That'd be quite a sight, wouldn't it? You're on the island in exile, and you look up into heaven, and you see a door standing open in heaven. That draws your attention, not a sight that you see every day. And all of a sudden, this barrier between this world and the spiritual realm in which God exists is opened up. And the voice that John hears from chapter 1, the loud voice, the one that spoke like a trumpet, is, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, come up here. Now John is receiving a vision from Jesus. And back in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So God has given a revelation to Jesus. Jesus has taken that revelation, is giving it to John. And John is to take that revelation and give it to his servants. So as John is called up into heaven to see a glimpse of heaven, make no mistake, this is not just something that Jesus wants John to see, this is something that Jesus wants us to see. He gives this revelation to John so that we will see it too. And all I want us to do is look and see what happens and what we see in the throne room of heaven and as we do this, we can obey a couple of scriptural commands. Psalm 22, verse 23 says, Stand in awe of him. That's a command. We're to stand in awe of the living God, and may we do that this morning. Colossians 3, 2 says, Set your minds on the things that are above. And I want to do that as well. We can do that just in these few moments as we're together. Set our minds on things above. So Jesus has something that John needs to see. And he says, come up here. Now, I don't want to speculate too much, but if you see a door in heaven and you're on an island on earth, how do you obey that command? How do you get up there? Well, I don't know what's going through John's mind, but we see how it's carried out. And this is kind of like it happens in our home sometimes with our boys when we say, young man, come here, and they obey that command and their feet never touch the ground. John experiences that. Right now, as Jesus lifts him up in the Spirit into heaven, and so John enters this realm where he's not necessarily seeing with physical eyes, he's seeing a spiritual reality here, and he is brought up by the Spirit into this place. And as he is brought up, and he get a, gets a glimpse into heaven, that oh-so-rare glimpse that is even rare in the Scripture, he looks into heaven, he gets up there, there's no uncertainty as to where he needs to be looking. 
Now, I would think that if you get into heaven, there's a lot of interesting things there, a lot of things you'd want to be looking around at. But when John gets to heaven, his eyes are fixed at the center of heaven. Just, just yesterday, my wife and I were at a wedding, and as the music rises up and everybody stands up and the bride enters the room, the groom doesn't care about the couple hundred people in the room right that moment. Looking down the aisle to see his bride, John enters into the throne room of heaven. And there will be other things in there that he'll see, but at the very moment that he gets into heaven, he looks and behold, he says, behold, draws our attention, a throne stood in heaven. That's what he sees at the center of heaven. The thing that captures his attention right away is that there's a throne there that dominates the skyline of heaven. It is the center and attention of all that is in heaven. As you read through the rest of this text, everything is is referenced by its proximity to the throne, before the throne, around the throne, on the throne. The throne is the center. This is what John sees first, the throne. This is a common testimony throughout the Bible. as, As different Bible characters get glimpses into heaven, it's a rare occurrence But every time they do, they see the same thing. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet is shown the throne room, the temple of God. It's where he sees God on his throne and the train fills the temple. And Isaiah says in chapter 6 verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. So when Isaiah sees a glimpse of heaven, what does he see? A throne and God sitting upon it. Ezekiel, another man privileged to catch a glimpse of heaven in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1 and 26, he says, The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. There was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated upon, above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of, with a human appearance. Ezekiel sees heaven, and what does he see? He sees a throne. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as he's being pelted with stones because he was faithful to testify to Christ. It says in chapter 7, verse 55 of Acts, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At his death, the heavens are opened and what does he see? He sees God He sees Christ. The next chapter in Revelation is chapter 5 where we see the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the center and main attention of heaven. Everything is located by this in heaven, by the throne. I don't know, I don't have much to say or commentary on those books that deal with people who see heaven these days, but all the main question I would ask is, is this the first thing that they see? Is this what comes up as they see heaven? Is it's a throne and those, the one seated upon the throne? Because the biblical testimony is that the ones who see heaven, the very first thing they see in the center and fixed tension of heaven is the throne of God. There's a, um, there's a pastor, he's a former pastor. He's actually an apostate now. He's clearly denied the faith. He was having an interview with Oprah and in this interview, was talking about supposedly spiritual things, and the question was posed to this man, what do you think happens when we die? And for a Christian, that's a, that's a softball. 
you get to hit a home run if someone asks you that. Oh man, you're just set up to go into the gospel and into the, the presence of God there. But his answer was this, quote, I think there is a ton of, oh, because there's all these people that have gone before you. Some people say, well, then you meet God. But yeah, I never met my grandpa on my dad's side. So actually, when I think of like dying, I actually think I'll get to meet Preston. That's actually what I think of first. I don't think of sort of gold and a throne I, and like, hello, well done. I don't think of that. I think of my grandpa I never met, and heritage and family and bloodline. I think of flesh and blood, people I've heard about, end quote. Now, it's true that Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 that there will be a sweet reunion of believers uh, at the resurrection. We are to look forward to that, and that is to control how we mourn this side of heaven. But if your goal and your desire is not to see God, your desire is to see your grandpa who passed on, who you never met, your desire is not to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, then I fear you may not hear that. I fear that you may not see what you want to see. That's the, the terrible reality of that kind of sentiment. If God is not the center of heaven to you, he won't be the center of heaven to you because you won't be in heaven. You will never be welcomed into his presence because the whole testimony of scripture is that we are to be restored primarily to a relationship with God. And when we go into heaven, it is to worship and adore him forever and ever to the end of end of end because there is no end. That's the testimony of scripture. Not that you get to see Grandpa Preston. Although that would be a sweet reunion, wouldn't it? The testimony of Revelation 4 is the center of heaven is that God is on his throne. Now, what does John, John see as he sees the, the throne of heaven? Verse 3, he says, He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. It's a pretty quick description, but it packs a punch. As John looks, he sees the appearance of the one who sits on the throne. Now God, we can't see him in the fullness of his glory. No man can see God. And yet here, God seems to manifest his glory in such a way that John can perceive it in a unique way. The, and the display is jewels. Jewels. The crown jewels of England are, are probably the most valuable jewels in the world, and at least the most well-known. They're kept under heavy guard and security most of the time. These jewels are used for the coronation of royalty in England. And quoting from the British royalty website, it says, The crown for the king or queen is made of gold and decorated with precious and semi-precious stones, including sapphires, tourmalines, amethysts, topazes and citrines and weighs a substantial 2.23 kilograms. That's about five pounds. It was last used to crown Queen Elizabeth II on June 2nd, 1953. If you look at these jewels, they're absolutely amazing. Uh, one of the crowns has that uh, mass of diamond, 317 carat diamond. Uh, I don't know how many of my wife's diamonds could fit into that one, but a lot. 
It's, it looks about that big, smaller than a baseball, bigger than a golf ball. It's massive. There's another diamond that's even bigger than that. It's, a, it's on a scepter, um, and it's just enormous. They have all of this gold and all of these jewels, and it's used to crown the royalty of England on their coronation day. But the thing is, they put on this crown, and they put on their robes, and they take the scepter in their hand for a moment And then they take them off and put them back under lock and key because it's meant to represent their royalty. It's meant to represent their status and regality and show the the worth of the position that they're taking on. But even if they wore it more often, they couldn't wear it forever. Sleeping with a five-pound hat on is not very comfortable. So they have to take it off. And it shows that these are just fallen human beings like you and me. God, our God, who sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases, manifests his essential nature as jewels. That's how worthy and valuable and precious he is. He never has to take off his glory. It always exists with him. It is permanent. It doesn't go back in a case under lock and key. He indwells and inhabits this glory forever and ever. This is what our God is like as John sees him on the throne. He is not a king or queen that has to go to bed. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He never casts off his glory. It is there forever. He has a jasper, which is like a a diamond today. He has a carnelian or sardius, which is like a ruby. So pure, clear, like crystal, like a diamond, red like a ruby. And then it says around his throne was an emerald rainbow. Around our chairs at our home is nothing but crumbs. Around God's throne is an emerald rainbow. I've never heard someone, after they saw a rainbow, come back and say, I saw an ugly old rainbow today. When you see a rainbow, it's the, one of the greatest and most majestic displays that nature has to offer. And this is what surrounds God on his throne. And it's different from any other rainbow because it's got the hue of an emerald, the hue of green to it. And of course, a rainbow is, harkens back to the Noahic flood when God put his bow in the clouds and made the promise that he would never flood the world again. It's a, a reminder of both his mercy and his judgment. And there in heaven is this rainbow that surrounds him that reminds of, us of both his mercy and his judgment, that he will bring a day where judgment will come again, but he also has mercy to bestow upon repentant sinners. Our God is encircled with a rainbow he manifests himself in in such a glorious way john certainly was overwhelmed with this appearance and pray that as we see through his eyes we would be too well the description doesn't stop there it goes on and now john really gets into the accompaniments of god's throne room What surrounds God? What accompanies his throne room? He's not alone. There's other things that are present with him, other creatures that are there too. And what's what's there? And as we go through this, it will there's a lot of detail here, and we won't get into all of it, but I, I just want to make one main point. God chooses very carefully the type of place in which he dwells. He's not a vagabond. He doesn't travel from here to there as a transient. He is very intentional. He's very picky, as it were, about where he stays. I know some people who um, 
when they go on vacation, the hotel has to be such and such a way with kind of certain kinds of pillows and certain kinds of bed. And uh, they're not staying in Motel 6, let's just put it that way. They're, they're picky about where they stay. God, because of his holiness, has a certain way at which he has to have his room set to reflect his holiness and his perfection. He's not picky in kind of an annoying way. He's holy, and he has to reflect his holiness in a certain way. He has to have things on his terms, not on anyone else's. He is the one who chooses the room in which he dwells. Now, Revelation, of course, is not written in a vacuum. It's the 66th of 66 books of Scripture. It's the final, it's the capstone, it's the the tying together of the beautiful tapestry of Scripture and so it, it draws on the theology and the experiences of Scripture so far. And so as we go through these accompaniments, we'll be tying this back to some Old Testament experiences and things that we see there. Hebrews 8.5 gives us a really helpful idea to have in our minds as we go through these few verses. It says this about the priests who served in the tabernacle and temple. It says, They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. God gave instructions to Moses about how his tabernacle was to be built. The tabernacle was the the structure that was built in the wilderness for Israel, the place where God would come and meet with his people. It was to have a holy place, a most holy place, and lots of uh, coverings and veils and uh, altars and, and lampstands, those types of things. And God gave very specific instructions. You read through Exodus, the second half of Exodus, and it just gets, it gets hard to read through because there's all of these details, detail after detail, but we need to remember this comes from the very mind of God, giving very specific instructions to his people as they prepare for their God to come dwell in their midst. And he is not some transient that will dwell just any place. He has specific ways for which he is to dwell. Well, that tabernacle and later the temple was a copy and a shadow of what the heavenly reality is. We see the reality here in chapter 4. Moses and Solomon saw the copy or the shadow of it. So keep that in mind as we go through these verses. The first accompaniment to the throne of God says in verse 4, Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So we meet these unique characters, the 24 elders. Um, They wear white robes, they have crowns on their heads, they sit on thrones. So the conclusion, if nothing else, is that this is royalty. These These are royal elders, rulers. Now there's debate among commentators. are the, This might be the raptured church or these are a, a class of angels. I would lean towards them being a class of angels, but I'm not going to get in a fist fight with you over that. Um, I wouldn't get into a fist fight anyway with you over anything, but especially this. Uh, they, they have sort of a ministerial function towards John. They interpret the uh, some of the vision to John. They're, they're accompanied by angels every time that they're shown. So I'd take it as angelic beings, but you can take it as the, um, the, the church or leaders of the church that works too. But the point is, the point is not to identify them so specifically. The point is to get the picture that these, this is royalty. God has surrounded himself with royalty in heaven. That's who he has sitting around him. 
clothed in white robes representing their purity, crowned with golden crowns representing their regality. Now an interesting thing happens in, in 1 Chronicles chapters 23 through 26. David is assigning the sons of Aaron to specific roles, the Levites and the priests. And as he gives these uh, assignments, he divides them up each time into categories of 24. In 1 Chronicles 23, there's, he divides them into 24,000 Levites who have charge of the work of the house of the Lord. In 1 Chronicles 24, the 24 sons of Aaron are appointed as sacred officers in the house of God. In 1 Chronicles 25, 24 sons of Asaph are to lead the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyre. In 1 Chronicles 26, the 24 heads of the temple are its gatekeepers. 24, 24, 24. This is per the instruction of God to to represent on earth what is going on in heaven, that he has these 24 elders that are to surround him in regality. And on earth, at the tabernacle and the temple, it is to be the, the priestly and Levitical class that leads worship, that offers the sacrifices, that has this all-important role of running the temple and running the tabernacle. And so God, again, we see him choosing his accompaniments carefully. The second thing that we see is the presence and power of judgment. After this, in verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. That's a fearsome thing. Perhaps in nature, there's no more powerful thing that we experience most commonly than a thunderstorm. You hear the rumblings of the thunder and it, it just makes you think of the power that's available to God. Well, that's what happens as these peals of thunder and lightning go out from the throne room of God in heaven. Just this power, this demonstration of awe that comes from God, that comes from the throne. As you work through the book of Revelation, you see these show up again and again, accompanying judgment. It's a reminder of God's power and judgment. Even in heaven, he displays his power in this way. Back in Leviticus chapter 10, after the tabernacle's been set up and the priests have been ordained, you know the story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron in Leviticus 10, says that they take their censer, they put fire in it, and they go in and they offer it unauthorized fire before the Lord. And you know what happens. Fire comes out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You cannot come to God except on his terms. This is illustrated for us even here in Revelation. There is a power of the presence of God, a holiness that will not welcome unwelcome sinners into his presence. He is so powerful and so awesome that he will not accept anyone except on his terms. The Nadab and Abihu couldn't come in and just offer any old sacrifice. They had to do it in God's way lest they be destroyed and they were God's power is on display. And this, let me just pause and, and say that this is a reminder for us that the only reason that we have access to this holy God is because Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross. And in shedding his blood, he cleanses us from our sins and makes us as white as snow if we come to him in repentance and faith. 
And thus we are cleansed and we're clothed in white like those rulers and elders are in heaven and we have access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we try to come to God with our own offering, our own perceived good works, on our own sentiments of how we ought to work our way to heaven, what is good enough to believe or what's not good enough to believe, if you make up your own standards and you come into the presence of God, you will face his throne in wrath and you will experience what Nadab and Abihu experienced for all eternity. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Next we see the third accompaniment to the throne and that is the Holy Spirit. After the display of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, it says, Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. This is another way of referring to the Holy Spirit in Revelation. Um, It's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in these seven torches that are there before the throne. Now, this is a, a lamp or a torch. It's the same word that's used for those torches that were brought to arrest Jesus in the garden. It's, it's not just a little flicker of a flame. It's a burning fire that casts its powerful light. And there's seven of them representing the fullness of light that's given here. These seven torches are representative of the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 1, uh, there's a greeting given. And we see these seven spirits here in verse 4. It says, of chapter 1, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. So there's this greeting at the beginning of Revelation where it's got God the Father and then the third is Jesus Christ and in between are these seven spirits and it would be odd if it was anything other than the Holy Spirit there. Seven, just representing the fullness of the Spirit in the, the flames, His omniscience and His light-giving uh, power. Zechariah 4 is a good Old Testament text to go to to see the similarities here. It's a vision of a lampstand with seven lamps and flames are, are lit there. And the summary interpretation of that vision is given in Zechariah 4, verse 6, the most popular verse of Zechariah. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, is represented by these, four, these seven flames. And you know in the tabernacle in the temple, there was that lampstand with the seven lamps put on it there to represent what's actually in heaven, the seven torches of the Holy Spirit in heaven. So there God is dwelling with his spirit right there. The fourth accompaniment is the sea of glass. This is a, a fascinating picture. I think one of the most beautiful things that we see is a, a sea on a calm day or a lake on a calm day. It looks like glass. In heaven, it really is. There's the sea of glass before the throne of God. Now, a sea does a couple things, but one of the things it does is it creates natural boundaries. You go to the edge of a sea and you can go no further unless you have transport across it. Uh, Lakes and seas provide natural borders for nations and for countries. And even in heaven here, it seems like it provides a natural border between God and the rest of his heaven. Even in heaven, there is a divide between God and everything else. 
There is a sea that separates him from God and everything else. That's the way you divide all of everything. There's God and there's everything else. And we fit into the everything else, And in case you didn't know. That's the way it is. Even in heaven, there is this separation, this expanse, a sea that's given. And it's made of glass, of a purity before the presence of God. In the temple, Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 7.23, it said that he made the sea, same word, the sea of cast metal. It was round, it was 10 cubits, about 15 feet from brim to brim, and five cubits, that's about seven and a half feet high. It held about 2,000 baths or about 12,000 gallons. So this is like a swimming pool. And the, ta- the use of it in Second Chronicles 4, 6 says, the sea was for the priests to wash in. The sea was there for the priests to bathe themselves before they offered their sacrifices and did their job. That's what it's there for. And even in heaven, you've got this pure sea of glass through which anyone who wants to come into the presence of God must pass. It's a reminder to us again that we must pass through the Lord Jesus Christ in order to come to God in holiness. Fifth is these, the fifth accompaniment are these living creatures. Now this is, this is odd. They've got six wings, they're covered with eyes in front and behind. One has the head of a lion, another an ox, another uh, eagle, another a man. Seems to represent all of animate creation. And their job is to declare the holiness and the glory and the perfection of God Almighty. They never cease to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Again, in the tabernacle and temple, God has the, the master workers weave into the veil that surrounds the holy place, these cherubim, these creatures. And so even in the, the earthly throne room of God are these representations of these creatures, but in heaven they're really there and they're these, these odd-looking things, but they never cease to give praise to God. So I mentioned earlier I taught this lesson to kids kindergartners and through second graders. And I just said to them, what do you think God's room is like? What do you think God's room is like? What does he have in his room? And I asked them what they thought, what they have in their room. They've got TVs and beds and all that. And they, they came up with some creative things for what they thought was in God's room. But as I went through this and I showed them what was actually in God's room, I asked them, do you have that in your room? No. Do you have this in your room? No. Do you have this in your room? No. Do you have torches in your room? No. They wish they did. But you see, this this is simply it. We don't have this because we're not God. This is our God and he dwells in holiness. This is the kind of holy place that he dwells in. And what a, doesn't it just necessitate the response from us to realize that in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16. God does not just choose anywhere or anyone to dwell in. And yet here we are, the church of Jesus Christ. As individuals, God dwells in us. As a corporate church, God dwells among us. And this is the kind of temple that we see in God's heaven. What kind of temple are we to be here on earth? 
God does not dwell in brick and stone on earth, but he dwells among his people. May this cause us to cast out all unholiness, all unrighteousness. May we realize that our holy God has chosen our lives in which to inhabit. We realize that our God is a holy God. Flee from our sin and prepare room for him in our lives. Well, that was the first point. As I told you, we focus on that. And let's just quickly look at the response in heaven. You worship the one at the center of heaven. The response of the creatures in heaven and the response of the elders is just so clear. Those creatures never cease to say night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The elders, it says, that they cast their crowns before the throne. They bow before him and they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, you remember those living creatures, they're covered with eyes in front and behind. And you think that's an odd thing. Be kind of, some people have a weird thing about eyes and be kind of nauseating to see something like that. All of these eyes in front and behind. You wonder, why do they have all these eyes? What do they do with all those eyes? Well, what do you do with eyes? You see. You see. And what do these do with all of these eyes? They see God. They need more than two to see the glory and the holiness of God. And so they're covered in front and behind with these eyes. And what do they do in response to what they see? They worship. They worship. And they worship more. We have two eyes. Let's use them as much as we can and see as much as we can see to worship the holy God who lives forever and ever. May He open the eyes of our heart to behold more and more of His glory, to see His His. His excellencies, His majesty, His perfections. Oh, we can always stand to use more of that. We can always stand to see more. And may He grant us to see more that we would day and night never cease to say, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then there's these elders, the royalty of heaven, who are clothed in robes, sit on thrones, wear crowns. And what do they do with their position? They take their crowns off and they throw them before God and they bow before him in humility and ascribe worth to God because he is the one who created all things. He doesn't say that they, that they worship God because by random chance and mutation all things exist. You are worthy because for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Everything. They look at the world that God has made and they see it as a display of his creative power and they worship him. And who are we to do anything less? Who are we to sit on our dilapidated thrones and restrain praise for ourselves? Let's get off of our little teeny thrones and fall down before our God and cast whatever crowns we have before Him to ascribe all worth and majesty and power to Him because He is the one who is worthy of it all. This is the response in heaven This is to be our response on earth. May there be a mingling of the two in our praise to God. What a wonderful thing, as we sang earlier, the Revelation song. We get to sing the same thing here on earth as being sung in heaven. Oh man, what a great, amazing reality. That here and now, while we live our short lives, we can lift our hearts in praise with the same sentiment, the same worship that is being lifted to God in heaven as we speak. May we continue to praise him. 
And let me close with this one reminder that Jesus, in John 17, 5, prays this, his high priestly prayer. He says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All of this glory that we see in Revelation 4 is the same kind of glory that Jesus had before he took on flesh, came to earth as a humble servant to die on the cross. He did it as an expression of God's benevolence and mercy toward us. That Jesus Christ, who shared this glory, came to earth to die for you and for me. And this ought to just excel our praise. This just lifts it to another level. Those creatures in heaven, God didn't send Jesus to die for them. God sent Jesus to die for sinners like you and me. So we have all the more reason to praise them, don't we? We worship God for the redemption that he purchased by the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's continue to do that. Lift our songs of praise to him for who he is and for what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we we ought to have no response other than to praise you for your perfection and your glory. Father, fill our hearts with the kind of praise that pleases you. Help us even this week to see more of your majesty and your glory, your, your perfection. May we be intentional about living, lifting our voices in praise to you. Lord, may we revel all the more in the redemption that was bought by the blood of your Son. May we magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and you, Holy Father, and live by the power of your Spirit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.